So I don't think we're seeing what everyone wants to believe is a resurgence in print. What I think we are seeing is the real value in magazine brands and content brands. That is Paul Rossi, the president of The Economist Group, sharing his thoughts on the future of the print magazine. While not every company can have their own magazine brand like Airbnb, Red Bull, and John Deere, it's still critically important to understand how consumers view more creative forms of branded content and evangelism. In this episode, Paul and I discuss ad tech consolidation, the growth of platforms like Snapchat, for better or for worse, and the value of partnership and collaboration. So to start us off, I asked Paul to give us his prognosis on the media publishing industry and the state of The Economist. The state of The Economist doing uh, actually uh, reasonably well. We're not immune to the trends that all uh, publishers are facing. Um, you know, the world is obviously moving from print to digital. Um, marketers are actually moving money from advertising to social and content. So we're riding uh, all of those trends, I think, doing a reasonably good job of it. We've built out our content marketing businesses, our events businesses. Obviously, our digital offerings uh, continue to grow. We launched uh, Economist Films in the last uh, six months. We launched our daily app in the last six months. So there's a lot of stuff going on, um, all of it to basically put The Economist in front of new audiences in uh, new ways and uh, also to try and help marketers then get messaging in front of that that audience. So a lot going on, um, but uh, as challenging for us as it is for everyone else. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned something really interesting. You mentioned the sort of shift away from advertising towards more content, more social. When do you think that sort of started and how long have you guys been sort of riding uh, that wave? Well, we've we've been in the content marketing business for about 15 years. And whilst that sounds very grand, what it really means was for the first 12 years, uh, we were effectively doing um, B2B white papers, surveys uh, with sponsors. So very traditional thought leadership um, white paper business that we've, we've you know, been running for 15 years. But as I say, the first 12 years um, was very focused on uh, fairly one-dimensional deliveries around uh, white papers and, and, uh, uh, and bits of research. I think for us, really, the, the big... Um, change was probably about three years ago when we started to see marketers um, beyond B2B starting to look at content and starting to look at content beyond thought leadership, which in many ways was uh, a lead generation tool for a lot of B2B businesses. So you started to see the shift, I would say, about three years ago, and we've built out our businesses. So we're now able to do um sort of B2C content, we're able to do client-branded content, not just co-branded content. We're able to do that beyond text, uh, data visualization, video events, all of that sort of stuff. So for us, it's uh, it's a business we've been doing for some time, but the real shift, as it were, in terms of money coming into the space, but also in terms of product development has probably happened in the last three years. 
What are your thoughts, Paul, on, on the state uh, of the magazine today? Obviously, uh, you know, The Economist was established as this magazine mid, mid-19th mid century, I think. But people have sort of said that magazines are dead. And then now, I mean, we've sort of seen this resurgence much sort of in the same way as we've seen a resurgence in radio uh, in that we're obviously podcasting now. I'm really curious your thoughts on the state of the magazine today because we, I mean, we've seen Airbnb came out with Pineapple uh, last year. And all these brands are really sort of like reinvigorating the magazine sort of in a way. But what are your thoughts? Well, I think there's a, there's a couple of things going on. One is I don't think we're seeing a resurgence in print per se. I think the challenges of people consuming digitally on mobile devices, uh, increasingly watching video, increasingly sharing content and receiving content that's been shared, those trends are are continuing. They're not going to go backwards. So I don't think we're seeing what everyone wants to believe is a resurgence in print. What I think we are seeing is the real value in magazine brands and content brands. Um, so that's one trend. But basically, uh, consumers are still turning to brands that give value and brands that they can trust, brands they have a relationship with. If you were an economist reader in print, Today, you can listen to us, you can watch us, you can read us on your phone, um, you can read us on Facebook, uh, you can follow us on Twitter. You know, all of those things just increase the opportunity for people to engage with us. That's done two things. It's taken engagement with our core audience deeper. So we find that a lot of people who used to just read us weekly now read us daily. And that might be through our Espresso app on their phone on the way to work in the morning. Um, but also it's allowed us to reach a lot of audiences that we wouldn't have traditionally been able to reach with a weekly magazine that was a paid product that you had to go and find. So I think there's a, uh, a sense in the industry that magazine brands are at an all-time high in terms of strength, and I think that continues. Consumers still turn to brands that they value. I think what technologies allow them to do is find those, find content, find brands, have deep relationship with brands, uh, in an easier way than, than may have been true a few years ago. I think the second thing that's happening is there are a lot of pure play online businesses that recognize in order to build engagement and in order to build loyalty and add value to their customers that they need something beyond a website or an app or a, or a tweet. Uh, and that's why I think you're seeing print magazines becoming part of the, the media mix. There are lots of examples of um, online businesses that are looking at print as a way um, to distribute and build distribute content, but also build relationship with audiences. So I think you get a slight maturing of online businesses thinking about how else they can reach their audience, um, and obviously print plays a part in that. I don't think that's a cyclical reversal of, of print. I think it just means that a lot of online businesses recognize that being a pure play uh, online uh, business uh, is challenging. I think there's a couple of you know fantastic examples. Amazon have opened their first real physical bookshop. Shop. Yeah. You know that's an example of you've got to move beyond just being um, a pure play uh, business. And there's lots of examples of that. Uh, you look at in the retail space. Um, you know Warby Parker uh, sells glasses online, but guess what? Warby Parker has shops. So, you know, I think there's a there's a, a realization that you need some other elements in the mix if you want to build a meaningful brand beyond just being an online product. What do you think five years from now in 2020, the main focus of this industry is going to be? What you have to look at is some of the sort of trends that you're seeing now and what 
impact they may have over time. I think that there are a couple um, that I think have really quite significant impact in, in business. One is uh, I think there's a great um, desire to talk about technology and disruption in this space. And I think actually what we should be talking about is rebellion. I do think you're starting to see consumers rebel against advertising. Um, you know, they're kind of fed up with these ads that add no value to the media they're consuming. The rise of ad blockers is only going in one direction, and that's because ad blockers work, people like them, and they create a better online experience, be that on your phone or be that on your desktop. So I think there's a rebellion against advertising that's, that's driving a little bit of this um, ad blocking uh, trend. I think there's also somewhat of a rebellion against choice. If you look at the people cutting uh, the cord on cable, they're basically saying, I don't want all of this other stuff. I, go, I want the content I want when I want it, how I want it. So I think you've got some of those trends that will just continue over time. I think what that does is shakes out a lot of the startups that you're now seeing that are ad-dependent uh, online media startups that basically have aggregated audiences uh, en masse with average content in many cases uh, with the goal of selling advertising to that audience and putting an ad in front of that audience. With ad blocking, and I think generally a consumer pushback on this, uh, people are even talking about peak content as a as a thought, that I think you will see a shakeout. I think you'll see consolidation around the ad tech industry. I think you'll see consolidation and or disappearance of a number of ad-supported websites um, that have basically sprung up over the last couple of years to capitalize on on the shift of money from, from sort of print to digital. So I think the landscape looks slightly different. I think that the, the magazine landscape will look slightly different. I think there will be some uh, magazines that disappear over time because the model that's heavily dependent on print advertising won't sustain them. But I do really genuinely believe that there will be all of the big, meaningful magazine media brands will be around in, in uh, five years' time. Um, and I think that you'll see uh, probably a bigger role, even bigger role in terms of platforms like the Snapchats and Facebooks in terms of distribution of content, but that the brands will still be core to that. It is crazy to me, and I still haven't quite figured it out, how basically every major brand right now has the Snap their logo inside of the Snapchat logo as their like Twitter image. It, it, like Wall Street Journal today, you know, just launched the Snapchat. And that to me like blows my mind just how deep Snapchat has sort of integrated themselves into brands. And I think it's really smart for them. But I think Snapchat is also really saturated right now, and it might be hard for consumers to engage in a way that all those brands on there want them to. Do you think reaching consumers will get easier or harder in the next five years? Uh, as you said, you know, advertising is sort of on the decline. It's going to yeah. be harder from that perspective to just, you know, blast people with, with things to see. And if they're ignoring them or they have ad block, obviously, uh, from that perspective, it's harder. But uh, what would you say? Are there other avenues that as a brand creatively you can pursue to, to reach folks? Well, I think there's a, just going back to your Snapchat thought. I think there is this uh, there's a wonderful principle of economics called the tragedy of the commons which basically says if you have a shared resource and everybody uses it, it has less utility. Um, and I think there's a real possibility that uh, some of these platforms are overwhelmed um, because basically now you've got 500 brands on there all competing 
and the utility and the value that the consumer liked initially is somewhat lost. So I think there is an interesting force about as these things explode, do do does the value for a reader actually change? Does that value proposition change? In terms of reaching people, um, I think it actually gets more difficult, but in reality what that really means is it gets more expensive. I think the thought that there's such a thing as viral video <laughs> is a lovely thought, but if you look at all of the big trending bits of video uh, that are, quote, viral, they're all largely supported by advertising spend. Um, so I think this idea of reaching audiences uh, there is much more opportunity, there are much more. There are many more channels, there are more interesting ways of doing it, but at the end of the day, I think it just means it gets more and more expensive. And I think that's the thing that marketers are waking up to, that if you really want to put content messaging in front of people, it's not enough just to put it out there, and, you know, spray and pray. You've got to put dollars behind it, and I think over time that amount of money goes up. Whether you then see diminishing returns and whether you see people uh, struggling with things like the equivalent of ad fraud for content, um, whether you have viewability around content, I think, again, is a really interesting uh, thought for five years out, that at the moment you've got, um, you know, at one level fraud, but you've also got a statistic that could be anywhere up to 50% of every web page isn't seen by a human. You know, those things are affecting the ad industry, but as, move, as marketers move to content, I think there's a question around how effective is content and how do you measure it, and are you seeing similar issues in terms of the effectiveness of content over time. So I think it's, it's more difficult, but really it's more expensive. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, speaking of more difficult and more expensive, I think that that is a perfect segue here into why uh, partnership and collaboration in this industry is so important. And a quick side note for our listeners wondering why we're talking about partnership and collaboration. Uh, this episode is sponsored by the Partnership Awards, which is put on every year by the American Association of Advertising Agencies. So I hope the remainder of this question makes a little bit more sense with that in context. Let's start with what is the role uh, and the importance of that partnership and collaboration uh, in this media industry right now? Can you make something so much more powerful and impactful if you're working with another brand or another partner to get it out there and to produce it? Partnership is thrown around to mean a lot of things. And in reality, does it really just mean sponsorship and cash? So I think there's a, you know, there's a number of ways of looking at this. In my, in my mind, when you have a strong media brand like The Economist, where the church and state around what content we will produce you know, is very uh, defined. So we are not the BuzzFeed model in that sense. Um, and there are lots of examples of things that are called partnership that really are about someone writing a check and getting something that they want. For us, partnership is, you know, is working with a brand where we have some ideas of products we want to develop. We have ideas of products that our readers will find useful, our audience will find useful. And it's really about working with a, with a brand to bring that to life. So there's a couple of examples of of that. Um, we did a, a fantastic project a few years ago with Chevron called Energyville, um, where we built a, a simulation of a city that you could power with various sources of energy. And basically, it was designed to help people understand as the conversation around climate change was developing, 
to understand the trade-offs of various new uh, sources of energy. And I, I think, you know, that's a good example of partnership, something we wanted to do, something Chevron wanted to be associated with. But in terms of the user, there was a clear utility um, and a clear value in what we were doing. We were helping them understand something that was complicated. That's kind of what The Economist does um, on a daily basis. But this was something that we were able to do to, uh, you know, get that out the door quicker because we had a we had a supporter, a sponsor for it. Um, but equally, we started from the point that it had value for our readers. Similarly, with the project you talked earlier about uh, with GE, you know, we we have this thing that we wanted to do called Economist Explains, which again is there's this stuff going on in the news. Uh, people might not understand the whole background around ISIS or the whole background around uh, um, fracking or, you know, supersonic flight, whatever it might be. Um, and what we wanted to do was be able to make concise um, uh, articles around these subjects on a daily basis that would help people understand what was going on in the world. Something we wanted to do editorially, we sat down with GE, and it tied in with helping people, their view of wanting people to understand what the world would look like in the future, and we developed this product called uh, Look Ahead. So, you know, you've got a you've got a, a relationship there that starts from we have a, uh, a particularly strong point of view of the kinds of things that we think our readers will get value out of. How do we bring that to life? Well, in this case, we have we have partners that help us fund that and help us get that out the door. So, I think you know, partnership at one level has to be where two brands work together and it's bigger than the sum of its parts. Um, and I think in many cases, that's not, not always true. If you look in the, in the um, sort of outside of the media world, there's some you know, interesting examples of where two brands work together. Um, you know, a few years ago, there was Target making uh, entrance to MoMA on Friday night free. You know, MoMA benefits, Target benefits, the brands work together really well. Nike and Apple, you know, two brands together that work really well and are bigger than the sum of the parts. And the consumer feels those two things are symbiotic and sympathetic. That's why I think partnerships are important. If you get them right, it doesn't feel like a forced relationship. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think that's how a lot of the relationships that are on display at the Partner Awards sort of come about as this mutually beneficial relationship. But I'm curious, how did the relationship with GE come about? Is that sort of the same thing where you guys come together to develop an idea or did you come to them with it? Did they come to you? How does that sort of uh, collaboration and partnership work? Uh, with collaboration, we were talking about other things and we, you know, we got to a point where um, we were Again, we had some insight in what they were trying to do. We sat down, um, had some things we wanted to do, and we were able to pull the two together. But you know, the best—and again, I think this is this is how the world is. One of the things that the world has changed uh, radically is the best partnerships that we do is where we are able to sit in a room with clients and really have those meaningful conversations about the marketing or business problem that they're trying to solve, not the advertising problem they're trying to solve. So the closer that we can get to understanding clients' problems and understanding what they're trying to do, the better we are able to come up with ideas that help them um, uh, solve those problems. But it starts with that collaboration and that conversation. If you go back uh, you know, a few years, 
most media relationships with clients were done through RFPs and ad agencies. You know, that's a very uncreative uh, way to build partnerships. Actually, the best way to build partnerships in our experience is to be able to sit across the table from a client and really get to understand the bigger problem, not the advertising problem. Um, but what is the marketing problem? What is the business problem? And I think there's not really a better way to end a conversation with The Economist Group's president, Paul Rossi, than to try and better understand a business problem. So uh, with that, Paul, how can our listeners find out more about you and all the, the Economist Group is currently up to? So the best way to find out what we're doing, and we showcase some of the things uh, that we've done for brands, is to go to uh, economistgroupmedia.com. Uh, you can follow us on uh, Twitter, you can uh, follow us on LinkedIn and all the various ways. But the best place to start is to uh, go to that website and see some of the things we've done. Fantastic. Well, uh, thank you again so much, Paul, for, for your time today. This is such an exciting conversation about not only uh, partnerships and collaboration, but the industry as a whole. Thanks again, Paul. Thanks. Thank you. Of course. Also, thank you so much to our listeners for following along. If you'd like to find out more about our partnership with the 4As, go ahead and check out partnerawards.aaaa.org or technologyadvice.com backslash blog. Thanks for listening.